0: I'm starting a new series, and and if you'll show the slide, Haley, or whoever's back there doing it, I'm riding off into the sunset. This This is my last series at Grace as your senior pastor. Now, I said that last night, and several people came up and said, Oh, is it your last Sunday? I said, no, my last series. You listen just as well then as you normally do. I'm going to preach through May, 9, May 16th. Is that it? May 16th is my last Sunday. And we'll have a huge party celebrating that I'm leaving at the Arboretum. The <laughs> people will be going crazy, dancing in the street, um, uh, in celebration of the fact that I'm leaving. So, but as we came up on it, I normally planned my send, son, sermons for, a year in advance but this year with the transition and all was going on I've been one step in the front of the hounds and so when we finished Easter I was really struggling what will I do last and and I just thought I'm just going to give you some of my favorite themes from all of scripture some of this you've heard before but you don't remember and and um I want us to look at some of the passages that have shaped me the most, some of the ideas that have shaped me the most. And the interesting thing is I wrote them down in about two two minutes. It just, once I came on that, they just exploded on the page and there's a natural progression to them that I think you'll find meaningful. Uh, This to me is kind of the bedrock of living with Christ today. And so we're going to start with one of my all-time favorite passages in Isaiah chapter 40. And it'll mean more to you if you look, because we're going to look at the whole, the whole chapter in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, let me give you a little bit about Isaiah. I, Isaiah was written in the 8th century B.C., 700s B.C., It was near the coming destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. Um, And Syrians were an incredibly powerful, mean-spirited empire. And there are actually reliefs, stone reliefs of showing the Israelites being taken off with hooks through their lips as in progressions as they were taken off. It was a harsh, harsh nation. And, And Isaiah was written just prior to that. But it's also about a hundred years out or so from when Babylon will come and take the southern kingdom and destroy Jerusalem. Now, you'll find some writers who will tell you that Isaiah had to have been written much later than this, or they'll say it's written in three different sections because it couldn't be written as as early as this. And the reason for that is it's prophetic. It speaks of things that have not yet happened. In fact, it even literally names Cyrus, who will be the emperor of Persia, who will ultimately bring Israel back at the end of the captivity, uh, the southern kingdom back. And so scholars who are skeptical don't believe that God could possibly be God will say, well, obviously they couldn't have known that in advance. so, So it must have been written much later than that. In fact, they even go so far as to say there are three Isaiahs, one, chapters 1 through 39 written much earlier and then a later Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah and Trito-Isaiah, the third Isaiah, in order, in order to divide it up so that it couldn't possibly be prophetic. The other argument they use, which is my favorite, is they say, well, it's got to be two different books because one through 39 is so depressing, it speaks of God's judgment. And then when it starts speaking of God's salvation, the mood changes. So clearly it couldn't be the same writer. You see the fallacy of that? The reason I'm telling you that is people who attack the veracity of Scripture have an agenda. And, and they will present that they are rooted in the, and, and we need to treat them with respect as human beings, but we also need to call out the fact that th- their, their reasons aren't just based on evidence. They they have an agenda that they're trying to show. So Isaiah was written by one of the great, possibly the, the most significant prophet in the Old Testament because the language of Isaiah is remarkably beautiful. The poetry of Isaiah and some of the greatest predictions about the Messiah come, you know, Isaiah chapter uh, 9, is it 9? Yeah. uh, um, Unto us a child is born, you know, Handel copied it and made a lot of money off of it without paying copyright fees. But unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his name shall be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, the everlasting father. That's Isaiah. Isaiah 53, the most powerful prophecies along with Psalm 22 of of the suffering servant Jesus as the uh, one who would uh, in spite of the fact that he is the shepherd and the king of Israel would undergo these horrible um, tragic tragic persecutions so Isaiah is an incredibly significant book and we'll see two or three places where it's in today's passage where it's quoted in the New Testament so uh, Isaiah is a book that, that you'll benefit from reading. The first 39 chapters primarily calling judgment on all the nations. They're, they're stark and they're harsh, but in judgment on the nations for their own evil and for their persecution of God's appointed people. But then in chapter 40, as I mentioned, the, the message turns to one of comfort. I don't know when I first read Isaiah 40 and it, it grabbed my heart. But Isaiah 40 is to me one of the greatest passages in all of scripture for when you've come to a point of despair. Sometimes we pretend as though people who love Jesus, people who are followers of Christ, never end up at a point of despair. But, but most of us at some point in our life will. Most of us at some point will, will experience things when all of the answers that we've used in the past aren't adequate. Where our, our, our willingness to pray suddenly is no longer um, a choice. It's all we have. Or sometimes even to the point we get to the point we can't even pray. Despair. And that's when Isaiah's message of comfort becomes so incredibly powerful. When, when you know that you don't have any answers in your experience that are adequate, when you know that while you might even know the answers that are technically correct, they're not emotionally satisfying. And there's a, there's a lot going around in Christianity. It's gone around for a long time. It, it's rooted in... in um, legalism going all the way back to the old testament and that is that if you if you're obedient to god you'll never have hardship you know that that god will always protect his children from difficulty it's not in scripture there are passages in scripture that taken alone could tell you that but if you look at the context of scripture you find out that sometimes god's children go through horrible difficulty because they're god's children and that that suffering can actually be a gift from God. You know, the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, in order that I may share in the sufferings of Christ as if it's a goal. But how how do you respond to that? Isaiah 40, I think, is, is the most beautiful passage in all Scripture about that. And, and in it, there is a message that I believe the evangelical church today needs more than we've ever needed it. So if you will, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. In your phone, on your Bible, in your memory, if you've memorized it. Um, first, verses 1 through 11, I said, here is your God. Comfort, comfort. My people. Remember this in the context of a long string, 39 chapters of judgment. And then then there's this interruption by the prophet where he says, Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel has gone through a time of judgment as a direct result of her betraying the covenant God had made with the nation of Israel. And God says there is a time yet coming when that judgment will be completed. Now let me tell you, when you look at prophetic material, in my opinion... More often than not, it has dual fulfillment. There's immediate fulfillment and there's far fulfillment. Here, this passage on one level will be fulfilled when Jesus comes, the first advent. And he will introduce what Jesus would be like in the next paragraph. But it is ultimately fulfilled at the second coming of Christ when he will come and establish his reign forever. So there is this multiple sense, but the essential message is always the same. So, when God says to the prophet Isaiah, bring comfort to my people, what is, what is the means of comfort? What does he say to be, you okay, Haley? You have a distressed look on your life. Uh, you no, know, I'm okay. All right. You know, when the AV people come running through the door and do this, you just think, am I fully clothed? What's going on? I you know, I just… Um, What are you going to do, fire me? Verse 3, a voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for a God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. Verse 3 is quoted in the Gospels as being fulfilled in John the Baptist because he is the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord in the first coming. But but it takes this bigger significance that goes even beyond that because it is is the forerunner to the message that God brings to bring comfort to all of his people at any time. He says, clear the way, raise up the valleys, flatten out the uh, the mountains, make it a flat trail so that he can come with ease because the glory of God will be revealed. Glory is a fascinating term. We always think of it as bright light, right? But The glory of the Shekinah glory was a great light in the Old Testament. One of my favorite definitions of the glory of God is the glory is the visible image of the character of God. When we see God's glory, we get a glimpse visibly, visually of who he really is. His magnitude, his greatness, his purity, his perfection, all that he is, the glory of God, a glimpse into who God is will come. And he continues, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and a voice says, Isaiah says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, What's that about? Um, You're about to hear the word of God, and you need to understand relative to the world of God, we're a vapor. Humans come and go. We, we are here for a little bit and then we're gone. That, that humanity in all of its self-importance is insignificant as compared to the greatness of God. When God's word speaks, it, it is eternal, but we who defy God's word will come and go. We're grass. Another passage quoted in, I believe, First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, you who bring the good tidings to Zion, you prophets of message for God's comfort, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, don't be afraid, and say to the towns of Judah, the southern kingdom, here is your God. King James, behold your God. Modern translations, look, look, it's God. How do we comfort each other today? How do we comfort each other? What is our message that we use to comfort each other? It's going to be okay. Um, You're a good person, you're strong, you're going to make it. Um, I've been through this before and it all turns out okay. We have all these messages of comfort that we use and, and there is truth in each one of them. But when Isaiah has a message from God to give comfort, what is his message? Look at God. Look at God. When, when we're in problems that are so significant that we have reached the point of despair, one of the cruelest things we can do is tell people, you know, I, I, go to them and say, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. It all works out in the end. Isn't that incredibly cruel? I mean, because it doesn't acknowledge the depth of their incredible pain. What do you say instead? I want to introduce you to the God of the universe. The greater your vision of God, the smaller the consequences, your vision of your problems. And the greater you make your problems in your mind, of necessity, the smaller your God has become. It is is a fact of life. One of the privileges I've had in my, you know, I, I, 28 years ago, I came on staff. Mike Fisher asked me to come on staff. I thought I'd do it for two years. So what do I know? Um, in those 28 years, I've spent a lot of time with incredibly godly people. And, and, and it's just been amazing to walk with people who are facing incredibly difficult things. And, and one of the things that's so staggeringly real is you meet people That are in tension and difficulties that are a level you think, I don't know how your head doesn't explode. And yet there is a quiet calm, not because they deny the hardship, but because they know who their God is. Look at your God. And then the next two verses are two of my favorite in all of Scripture. Now, I've always joked that my favorite passage of Scripture typically is the one I'm teaching right now. But these really two, these two verses really, I've got them on a plaque that a Bible study gave me in the 70s. I mean, they are two verses that have shaped my view of God as well as my view of what we are to be in so many ways. So look with me at verses 10, 11, 10 and 11. He said, here is your God, and now in verses 10 and 11, he's going to give you two descriptors of who God is. Verse 10, see the sovereign Lord, sovereign, all-powerful, ruling one, in control. God is in control. Sovereign means in control. And he comes with power. His arm rules for him. Why arm? Because they fought with swords and shields. The, the strength of a warrior was his arm. So it was, a, it was a metonymy, a picture of the power of a warrior. His arm rules before him, His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He has sovereign power, great strength, and the right to dispense judgment and blessing. God has sovereign power, incredible strength, and the right to give both blessing and judgment. First thing he wants us to know is this is a God who is capable of absolutely anything. This is a God who is capable of absolutely anything. And then in verses 12 through 26, he will develop that idea. But the first question you have to ask is when you're in a point of despair is, is my God big enough to fix this? Is my God big enough to fix this? And quite frankly, I want to tell you, there have been times in my life where if I've had to admit the God that I worshipped wasn't the God of Scripture because the God that I worshipped wasn't big enough to fix my problems. I had lost sight. I'd gotten so consumed with how big my problems were that I had shrunken God to a pygmy status. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is absolutely sovereign, absolutely in control, absolutely powerful, and has the right and the privilege and the duty to bring blessing and judgment. He's big enough for anything. There is not anything in all of this world that he's not big enough. Oh, but Andy, have you seen how bad things are right now? Really? Really? We, we get the impression sometimes when we speak of God as if he's a uh, I remember a professor in seminary saying, God is not in heaven wringing his hands out of worry. Nothing has caught him by surprise. Nothing is so great that he can't deal with it. And sometimes we act as though we, we need to go to God and say, God, I think you're missing something here. Things are really bad and you're not doing anything. Yeah, you get that in the book of Job. I love the book of Job as they struggle with their, the Job's despair and you see him struggle with how big is your God. So the first answer is look at a God who is all-powerful, all-sovereign and capable of dispensing judgment and blessing. But if that were all that he uses to describe God, it wouldn't be enough. Look at the next verse, verse 11. The first picture of verse 10 is a mighty warrior, but the picture of verse 11 is the shepherd. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, he carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those who have young. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd sacrifices his life and time and even his safety to care for dumb animals. I mean, I mean this with all due respect, but they are not the smartest animal in the barnyard. You know? What do sheep do? They follow. Or what does a sheep do to defend itself? Nothing. Nothing. I, my uncle Irenus in Malakoff, Texas. Yes, I had an uncle Irenus in Malakoff, Texas and he had sheep and they, they, they were out around the outdoor privy, still had a Sears catalog, working outdoor privy. See, it's working if it still has a Sears catalog hanging there. Um, and he had sheep there and I had never encountered sheep. We're Texans, you know, they're cow people, but there were sheep and I got totally disillusioned with the fact that God refers to us as sheep. It is not a compliment. Let me just say. But it's a perfect illustration of the way God loves us. Because we're needy. We're defenseless. And he holds a defenseless lamb close. And cares for the nursing mom. He is capable Of meeting any need, no matter how great it we have. But he also cares enough to respond to any heartache, no matter how deep it is. That's the outline of this chapter. I want you to look at your God. Who is your God? Do you really believe he's capable? And do you really believe he cares? I will submit to you, more often than not, when we reach despair, it's one of those two things that we're struggling with. We begin to wring our hands and get so concentrated on the powers that are against us that we stop believing that He's capable to meet any need, no matter how great it is. Or we're convinced of His power and we begin to think He doesn't care about us. And Isaiah says, "No, it, when you look at God, you get both." Now, verses twelve through twenty-six, He He goes deeper into His greatness. I called it who is his equal. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who is as great as he is where all of creation is like nothing? Or who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him in the right way? Who was... It, that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding. Who, who thinks they teach God sometimes we think we do you ever had those prayers where you say okay Lord I know you're God but you need to sit still because I'm going to explain some things to you right don't look at me that way we've all done it we've all done it but, but Isaiah says in our heart of hearts we know that his wisdom is unimaginable In fact, next week, the sermon will be from Proverbs as we talk about God's wisdom. Um, Job struggles with this, and at the end of Job, God says, were you there to instruct me? Did I come to you for lessons? See, again, we we can fall into this trap of thinking, somehow uh, I'm in this difficulty because God must have missed something. And, And Isaiah says, no, no, God is yet in control. So his his greatness, his knowledge and wisdom, verse 15, compared to the nations. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust in the scales. He He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon, which was known for its forests, is not sufficient for altar fires nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. These great empires, these great nations, these great governments, we got our hair on fire about it. Nah, they're nothing. They come and go. They're like fine dust. You blow on them and they disappear. They disperse. Are they significant in our history? Of course they are. But relative to God, they're dust. Verse 18, he really moves in. The intensity. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Well, as for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor uh, to present such an offering selects wood that won't rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that won't topple. He said, so, so some of you have chosen to build your own gods. You built your idols. And, and if, you, if you've got enough money, you buy them out of precious stone because that's good. But if you can't afford that, you at least try to get wood that won't rot. Because when your god rots, it's just a downer, right? Right. And, and, and hopefully, when they build them, your, your carpenter will be good enough. He'll build him on a stable enough platform so that in the middle of your prayer, he won't fall over straight on his head because, I don't know, it doesn't include, increase the confidence you have that your idol is good if he falls flat on his face. And that actually happens in the Old Testament where an idol falls as God's judgment on it. What is he saying? We build idols that, well, frankly, they're jokes. And of course, we all say, "Well, I don't have an idol at home. I don't build those." But, but we do create our own gods. Anything that takes the place of God in our lives is an idol, right? And anything, when taken away, leaves us in despair, is in danger of having become an idol. Do you get that? Anything, when taken away leaves us in a state of despair, is in danger having become an idol. We have made it into our God. Whether it's our careers, our wealth, our popularity, how people view us, our image, our family, our friends. And sometimes what God will do is he will carefully, like a skilled surgeon, start removing those idols from our lives to see if he can cause us to look to him. And I've been there. It hurts. It hurts. But God, God has a plan in it. By the way, there's one other thing I need to tell you. Idol worship is always self-worship. Because who made the idol? Right? Right? If, if you create your God, then you are the ultimate God because the creator is over it. And when we create idols, we are ultimately the object of our worship. And that goes all the way back to the garden. You shall be like God, right? The ultimate struggle in life is, does God get to be God of my life or am I going to be God of my life? That's where we live. The ultimate question for Christianity and facing God is always, always comes back to a choice of the will. Am I, am I humble enough to accept that God is God and that I'm not? And, and, and we Christians struggle with that too, right? Because we, we just kind of want to pull back control and dictate to God. And he says, no, that's not your job. Next, he speaks of. I'm going to go a little long. Hold on. Verse 21. His role is greater. Don't you know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and he reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows them and they wither. and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? God says. Lift your eyes and look to heaven. Who created all of this? He who brings out the story of hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength not one of them is missing his ultimate right to sovereignty is his creator he made it all Reminds me of the book of Jonah. You remember, the, they're out in the ship. He's trying to flee the will of God not to go to Nineveh, and, and, and God sends a huge storm, and all the sailors are throwing stuff overboard, and they're all praying to their gods, and they come down and wake up Jonah and say, who's your God? And he said, well, I worship the God who created everything. You all got your little gods. Mine's the big God. That, that's the role that God, God, that's why the issue of creation is so significant and why the secular world is so committed to abolish the role of God as creator. Because if he's creator, then we have to submit to him. And that's, that's how Isaiah ends this first section of showing his greatness, is reminding us that he is the creator. And therefore, all this stuff is subject to his power. The last section, he applies it to that whole issue of his care. He will renew you. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by God? You ever been there? Have you ever gotten to the point where you said, God, I I know and believe that you're all-powerful, but I think you've forgotten me? My, my name somehow got lost. I didn't make the list today. It's a reality. It's a reality that many of us have or will experience in life. When, when the pressure of life gets so intense that we wonder if he still remembers us. That's despair. That's the loss of hope. We're in, we're in a time in our community when people are losing hope and, and the problems seem so big, regardless of where you are and all the other stuff, but, but the answer, the ultimate answer isn't just to solve these problems or yell louder than the opposition. The answer is where are you going to get your hope from? And Isaiah says, do you think God's forgotten you? Do you you think he's that forgetful that he can't remember your name? Don't you know? Haven't you heard the Lord is the everlasting God? He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He didn't grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can comprehend. So he gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak even though youths go tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. There's a lie going around that if you love Jesus, you'll never have hardship. How do we know that's a lie? First of all, Scripture doesn't say it. You can take a few passages out of context and kind of squeeze that out. But Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus, who's the perfect man, was crucified. The the reality is, Scripture says that, in fact, because we are in the world, but not of the world, sometimes we're going to have worse trouble than everybody else. How's that make you feel? Everybody want to leave today? The answer is not that God will protect us from ever having difficulty. The answer is that when we wait on him, we hope in him, he will give us strength to get through it. And in getting through it, we learn faith. And in learning faith, we come to see his greatness. Because the message to those who are in despair is to look at God. Look at God. Uh, we get so absorbed, and we've, we're doing it as a society right now. We get so absorbed in all the problems, and they're real, and we need to address them, and not saying in any way we shouldn't do that. But, but when we start losing despair, it's because we've gotten so caught up in those problems that we're no longer looking at God, and we're acting as though he's either incapable of responding to the need, or he just doesn't care anymore. And God says, Really? Have you you not heard? Have you not seen the everlasting God? A.W. Tozer used to say in one of his books, the most significant thought a person has is what he thinks of when he thinks of God. And we are a society that have lost sight of God. Our, our worship services are more about making us feel good and being entertained and everything else too often, right? Our, our, our books in, this, in the Christian bookstore, or, well, there isn't any such online, you know. Bookstore is a place they used to sell books. It's, it's a crazy idea they used to have. The, I, the books are all about how God's going to do this for me and God's going to do that for me, and those, there's truth in all of that. But strength doesn't come from that. Strength comes from waiting, trusting, hoping in the one who's never met a problem he couldn't handle and never met one of his children that he didn't care about. Behold your God. He's a mighty warrior. His arm goes before him, his recompense after him. He is greater than any of us can ever comprehend. He's a shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep and holds the lamb to his chest and love and cares for the nursing ewe. He is, he is the God who can fill our hearts and minds when we lose heart. We're in despair. J.B. Phillips wrote the Phillips New Testament which I still use Um, wrote a book I guess in the 60's called Your God is Too Small and granted the 60's were a long time ago but the problem is still there we're worshiping too small a God and the problem isn't who he is the problem is what we're seeing comfort my people what shall I cry out look. Look at God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it's, we're so weak. It is so easy for us to lose sight. And we confess that when we do, we lose faith and we don't serve. Lord, I pray that you would give us a strength in our hearts, a confidence in our hearts of your greatness and your love so that we would not despair, but would walk in trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen.